When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club for the month of June 2016. I'm Katie Waldman, words correspondent at Slate, and I am here, or virtually here, with uh, Emily Bazelon of the Political Gap Fest and the New York Times Magazine. Hey, Emily. Hey, Katie. Um, and also with Jessica Winter, who is not only Slate's features editor, but also the author of the forthcoming novel, Break in Case of Emergency, which is amazing. Hi, Jessica. Hello, Katie. Today, we'll be talking about Eligible, Curtis Sittenfeld's pert modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Spoiler warning, we will be spoiling both Pride and Prejudice and Eligible today. So if you'd like a pristine reading experience with either of those books, please pause this podcast, read Austen, read Sittenfeld, and then return. Anyway, I want to jump right in. Emily and Jessica, can you both quickly go over your relationship to Austen and to Pride and Prejudice coming into the novel? You know, I don't have the kind of close, fond relationship to Jane Austen that most of my bookish friends, certainly my bookish women friends, tend to have. I've read Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice and Emma twice each, I think, but I've never read any of the others. I tend to, and this is a little embarrassing to admit, kind of sink into the cinematic adaptations Mm. more than I've sunk into the books, maybe because they're so beautifully cast. And in revisiting Pride and Prejudice uh, to prepare for this podcast, I was kind of kicking myself as as to why Jane Austen has always, you know, she hasn't passed me by, but I've I've never had a Jane Austen period in my life. And uh, hopefully Curtis Sittenfeld and Eligible will fix that for me and I, I can go back and, and read the whole canon. What about you, Emily? You know, I read all of Austen. I think I read it in my 20s, probably. And I love Jane Austen, but I also have not read those books a million times. I don't think of them as formative. And I was actually talking about this a little bit on the Gab Fest with John Dickerson and David Plotz the other week. And they each had like super um, warm, important memories of reading Pride and Prejudice, reading Austen for the first time. And I was a little bit envious of them. I have to say, in re- I also reread Pride and Prejudice last week, and I loved it, and I especially loved it because of the um, kind of proto-feminist characteristics of Elizabeth Bennet, the protagonist, so maybe we can talk about that in a little bit. But Katie, what about you? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think I always approached Austen in an academic context. Like, I read Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility and Persuasion for school, and so I have very warm memories of engaging with those books as a student, and yet I didn't seek them out for my own personal pleasure. It was always sort of like, what can I mine from this text and what arguments are being made in in a kind of more academic mindset. So it was really fun uh, for me to have this contemporary retelling that 
is just pure pleasure and fun. But actually, let's go to Liz Bennett, as she's called in this book, because, I mean, recreating that character must be one of the tallest orders of of literature. I mean, she's so beloved and she's so charismatic. Um, so I was wondering what you guys made of Sittenfeld's Elizabeth Bennett. Um, I thought that Sittenfeld's Liz Bennett was one of the more successful um, aspects of Eligible. I liked the character. She reminded me of Elizabeth Bennett in Jane Austen's hands, but she also had enough of her own contemporary flair to be her own person to me. So I, I was um, a happy reader of that part of the book. I have other criticisms of Eligible, but that wasn't one of them for me. Jessica, what about you? Yeah, I agree. I, I feel like a, a lot of this book was sort Sort of, you know, feats of, of resoulment, like, you know, plucking a soul out of the early 18th century and dropping it into the early 21st century. And I thought one of the ways that Sittenfeld really nailed that was with Liz Bennett and sort of Elizabeth Bennett in Pride and Prejudice. She, she often veers toward, you know, maybe being a little bit too cutting or just just a little bit not mean but just her intelligence is so sharp that you know people might cut themselves on it and i liked how sittenfeld kind of pushed and made Liz Bennett in moments kind of mean. Uh, there's there's a thought that she has, a passing thought at one point that she has about her sister Mary, where she says that Mary was both unintelligent and unattractive, which was a combination that Liz didn't think possible. And I really paused over that moment in the book, like, oh, that is an awful thing to think. But then as we see, Liz herself is kind of rehabilitated. And um, I think Sittenfeld herself kind of rehabilitates Mary as a soul also worth our attention, even if fleetingly toward the end of the book. So yeah, Liz Bennett felt felt right to me. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Poor Mary comes in for so much abuse. Another really incisive or, or cruel comment, I thought, was when Liz says, or uh, Sittenfeld shows us Liz thinking that Mary probably is not gay because the gay people she knew in New York were more interesting than Mary. And you had to be interesting to be gay. It was just, it was a sort of unlikable train of thought that she invited us into. And it sort of made me think that the original Elizabeth Bennet is kind of brash and pushes boundaries in ways that like reading it in the 21st century, you don't realize that she's being transgressive. But this update does show the modern Liz Bennett being transgressive in the same way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's moments in the original Pride and Prejudice where, say, Lady Catherine will say, impertinent girl or, or whatever. And you're like, really? She, what she said didn't seem all that <laughs> offensive. Um, but, then, <laughs> but then in the book, once in a while, Liz Bennett will say something something where I think, ooh, impertinent girl. So yeah, that, that felt very accurate. Yeah, although on the other hand, some of the critiques of this book have been that the female characters are too vulgar, like they're too crude, they're mean to each other, they don't have any of the delicacy uh, or the grace of the original Austin incarnations. And I'm wondering what you guys make of that criticism. That one leaves me cold because I think the original Austin characters for their time are similar. I mean, I felt like Sittenfeld was pretty faithful to the um, 
ambiance of this home, this family, and the individual characters. So the younger sisters, Lydia and Kitty, yeah, they're vulgar. They're obsessed with CrossFit. They're like doing their nails, but they, that, it seemed quite like the flirtations, you know, with this military regiment that are going on in, you know, in Austin's time. And Mrs. Bennett, who's such an important and basically skewered, you know, essentially like, despicable, maybe that's strong, but not a likable character. She also seemed like she um, was just being translated from her original incarnation to me. And then the relationship between Liz and her sister Jane, which is the only really, you know, solid, good female relationship or really friendship in the book, again, like it also um, seemed to translate in a way that felt um, resonant with the original text to me. Yeah, I think, Katie, one of the reviews that you were referring to just now is Machiko Kakutani's in the New York Times, where she talks about how... Which was so mean, that review. Yeah, I mean, at at one point, and and Katie called this out in in her own piece, uh, Kakutani says that uh, Lydia and Kitty in the book are just too vulgar and too gross, basically. But in in the original, again, I mean, it doesn't always translate out of the early 18th century, but, you know, they're supposed to be vulgar and maybe a little bit gross, even if it translates to us today as just giggling silly girls rather than young women who are constantly making really inappropriate jokes in mixed company. So I thought that criticism kind of missed the point a little bit. Yeah, yeah. No, that's an interesting point. And it also kind of raises the question of like what makes a successful adaptation because it's obviously not replicating the exact sensibilities of whatever relic you're reviving. I mean, not that Pride and Prejudice is a relic. It's very much alive in its own right. But I mean, do you guys think that this book, which reproduces so much, like I think some of the dialogue is actually translate or it's taken directly from Pride and Prejudice and put into Mr. Bennett's mouth. There is like one part where I think that's the case. Do you think that it hews too closely to the original or do you think that it could be read in its own right as a, you know, a novel standing alone. It's interesting you ask that, Katie, because I think I committed a kind of category error when I started reading the book. I thought, I'm going to put Pride and Prejudice completely out of my mind, and I'm just going to read this as a standalone text. But I realized like 30 pages in how silly that was, because part of the pleasure of the book is figuring out how all of these parts slot together and how she Mm. makes all of these translations. The only time that I, and I loved the book, uh, I, I really enjoyed it and I tore through it in, in one weekend. The only time where I felt like maybe the palimpsest of Austen's novel was a little too visible in maybe awkward ways on the pages of this book was in the kind of clipped Englishness of a lot of the exchanges. I saw this especially with Caroline Bingley, sometimes with Darcy, and sometimes with Liz's dad, who who you just mentioned. I didn't mind it. It actually kind of amused me and delighted me. And whenever Darcy was talking, I imagined Colin Firth saying his lines for sure. (laughs) Um, So I I didn't think of it as some kind of major flaw. But it was really the only thing I noticed where I thought, huh, like maybe to be, you know, perfectly successful in this one regard, you know, they could have American, she could have Americanized this a little bit more, but it wasn't a big deal to me. What about you, Emily? My problem had to do with the machinations of the plot. I got very hung up on the moment in the plot where it's pretty late in the book. 
Darcy and Liz are poised to finally get together. She's visiting Pemberley, the California, you know, like wine country version of the um, British Pemberley estate. And then she gets this crazy text from her sister that her sister is eloped with someone who's transgender. I did not think that the transgender part of the book generally was handled super well. And, and then she like, Liz gets this text and she just like runs off without saying a single thing to Darcy about her feelings, about how she feels like they, you know, have this real bond. I mean, at that point, she's basically realized she's in love with him and they miss each other. And then there's this sort of further complication where there's a confusing text that Liz receives from Darcy's sister that makes it seem as if he's having a relationship with Caroline and blah, blah. I just didn't buy any of that misunderstanding. And it's a problem because it keeps Darcy and Liz apart for several more months. And that whole idea seemed like this 18th century artifact Mm -hmm. that was in a quite clumsy way being incorporated into our 21st century world in which communication is so easy and um, misunderstandings, yeah, sure, they still happen, but they're, the antidotes to them are much more available to us. So that bothered me, and I, for me, it was like the flaw of the book. But I also am generally someone who finds misunderstandings very frustrating in literature and <laughs> mm-hmm. rom-com movies. So I don't know, maybe I was like overly, did that, what did you guys think about that part of the book? I mean, I completely agree that it was not realistic at all. And it, to me, it felt like one of those like delightfully frothy rom-com conventions just being airlifted in because like, oh, who doesn't love a crazy uh, mistaken identity equivalent plot twist, you know? And I actually found it really frustrating too because I wanted them to get together. But as a way to prolong the tension, I thought, you know, that works. I'm, I'm not expecting like great verisimilitude. Of those two plot twists, the one where Liz abruptly, where she drops everything and flies away from Darcy to tend to her family turmoil, I actually did buy that because I thought that there was just a touch of the martyr about Liz, especially Mm -hmm. in her relationship with Jasper Wick and obviously her relationship with her family. And I, I thought that that played very well into the martyr complex that that the book kind of flicked at. I also think that she was getting kind of afraid of falling in love. And it was that was kind of a convenient way for her to avoid those, you know, deep and confusing feelings. On the other one, the Georgie text, like, yeah, I admit, that felt exactly like the classic romantic comedy misunderstanding that is kind of engineered into the plot to create the misunderstanding that then, you know, will protract the plot for 20 more minutes to keep everyone deliciously apart until you can get them back together. That that felt forced to me. And it seemed like something that could have been wrapped up in five minutes with a couple more text messages. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I got to give you that one. Emily, was that your main criticism of the book? Because you did mention a few apprehensions about it. That was my main criticism. My other one was I felt like the part of the plot where Lydia marries Ham, who's this um, transgender guy who runs the CrossFit gym she goes to, 
I mean, I, it was okay, but it just, it didn't feel like super sensitive or super up to date in its rendering of that relationship. There's like almost, it's, it's very, it's sketched in a pretty abstract kind of far off way that, uh, I didn't, I felt like it was lacking some layer of like three dimensional humanness. And, you know, given all of the, um, politics of, um, transgender identity right now, that felt a little lacking to me. Yeah. I mean, I could, I respect the inclination and I could feel the book pushing to, like pushing at the boundaries of the Jane Austen universe and trying to include more people. And so you have references to, you know, black real estate agents and this trans guy. And I'm trying to remember if there were any other, what ultimately felt like cursory nods to diversity in the book. But I appreciated that she tried to populate the world with like more people who, you know, participate in society today as opposed to back in the 18th century. But you're right. There was like an element of tokenism, I guess, to it. Well, and also those people are mainly props in the plot that the parents then react to in a freaked out way, right? Like Ham's main purpose is for Mr. and Mrs. Bennett to get upset, or at least Mrs. Bennett to really, really get upset that Lydia has married him so that Liz can fly home. And so that means even though, you know, Liz and Jane and other characters are supportive of the marriage, the whole relationship has this like very contested, um, is significance to the book. And it's not, I mean, sure, like someone's parents could get freaked out. I'm not saying that that's not very possible. It just gave the whole thing this like kind of spotlight that I was bridling at a little bit. I do think Ham is a problem as a character. I think he's a kind of plaster saint. Like the way mm-hmm. he absorbs Lydia's general terribleness and right, the way right. he, she's awful. She's really <laughs> awful. And homophobic, too. Yeah. Uh, Even if her homophobia is a projection of her own insecurities about falling in love with a transgender person, she remains homophobic. And the way that Ham deals with her, the way that Ham endures the opprobrium of her family and just accepts how they are and just kind of smiles bravely through it was really annoying, especially given that, as Emily said, he and the real estate agent are props. You know, they're, they're not really characters. So that did bother me. And even when Darcy helps the family in two ways, he, he helps Jane and Bingley reconcile after being instrumental in their breaking up. And he says the magic words to Lydia's mother to help her understand why it's okay that Lydia is with Ham. And those are really nice things for him to have done. And it's great that the family can reconcile and Lydia's mother can bring some modicum of acceptance, however fraught and twisted that acceptance is to her daughter's marriage. He accomplishes it by telling Lydia's mother that Ham suffers from a birth defect, which is effective, but that is not, as Emily said, that that is not how we talk about transgender people in our lives. So I had a lot of trouble with that. No, in all fairness, we should say that Sittenfeld has Darcy say, this isn't really medically accurate, yes, but I thought it would be helpful to your parents. So she recognizes it, but I still had the same problem with it that you had. I just don't want to like not let her off the hook a little bit. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. that's that's a really important thing to, to point out. Right. Well, I think let off 
the hook is a really good phrase to use here because I sometimes felt like Sittenfeld was letting her characters off the hook for really reprehensible behavior. And she was just saying, oh, you know, let girls be girls. Like, they're coarse. They speak their minds. Like, there's something we're supposed to sort of uh, thrill to in that. And I agree with you. I often was reading about Lydia or Kitty and thinking, or, or Mary even, and thinking, like, this is terrible. You can't, <laughs> you can't talk like that. But yes, so that's just to agree with you there. Can we talk a little bit about Jasper Wick? Yes. The um, updated version of um, Mr. Wickham in Pride and Prejudice, who is the the false suitor, the, the super charming, smooth operator who turns out to be rotten to the core once exposed by Darcy. Absolutely. Take Absolutely. it away, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> I loved this part of Eligible. I thought this was one of the most successful updatings and aspects of the adaptation. He has this long-running relationship with Liz Bennett where he's married, um, but they're having an affair and she's putting up with and even like trying to um, convince herself that this kind of half relationship she has with him is exactly what she wants and is perfectly satisfying. And meanwhile, it's very obvious from their dialogue that he is using her to bounce ideas off of, to make his own um, magazine writing and editing better, and also just to, like, be the sort of, um, you know, star rotating around his moon or whatever the metaphor is. He seems like a complete narcissist and it takes her forever to figure it out. But that felt like very possible to me, their relationship. And he was perfectly infuriating. (laughs) Yeah, he ticked every single box on the bad boyfriend list. I mean, when he tells her early on that he doesn't want to be romantically involved because you're such an important friend and I just don't want to mess it up. I mean, that's... (laughs) textbook. And then um, there's that excruciating moment where he says, I love you in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I agree with you, Emily. I mean, loving to hate Jasper Wick was definitely one of the primary pleasures of this book. Yeah. And I wonder actually if that contributes to the ham saint saint effect, the halo, because he was broken. That's one character in Pride and Prejudice, right? Uh, Wickham, who both absconds with Lydia. And uh, actually, I don't think, does he ever get involved with Liz? Is he presented as a romantic possibility for her? In Pride and Prejudice, they do a lot of flirting and she, she says, I'm not in love with him. I'm not in love with him, but she's very, she's having a good time talking to him. And then he, um, as you just said, elopes with Lydia. Yes. So it's like all of his like actual possible perceived good qualities migrate into Ham and then like all the dredge is left in Jasper. And I agree. He's like a wonderful supervillain. Uh, I would read 10 more books starring him that's as a supervillain. So, that's so interesting, Katie. I'd never thought of it that way before because – when you're reading about Wickham in the book, I mean, he's basically bri- – I mean, he he runs off with Lydia and then he's basically bribed to marry her to save the, the family's um, good name. And so – Very much an 18th century conceit, right? <laughs> it wouldn't have worked – I'm sorry, 1800s conceit. It would not have worked for um, – there would have been no way to update that that could have succeeded, right. I don't think. Right. But you you want to believe that there there is some good – in him because Lydia, however horrible she is, does have to spend the rest of her life with him. And <laughs> right. so the idea of 
imagining him with salvageable qualities and then hoarding them all for ham is a really interesting idea. I like that. I mean, did you think that this book was romantic, you guys? Like, we definitely saw Liz and Darcy actually having sex, which is a big change from Austin. Um, they had very, they had excellent yes. sex. I yeah. liked that. After running together, so they got all, like, just sweaty. Yeah, what did she, she said, um, one of the, like, most unsubtle foreshadowings ever, like, I felt such, or Liz felt such a profusion of vitality sprinting up the hill, and I was like, oh, this is good. Yeah. <laughs> I found it romantic. I mean, I found it. I, I I thought the hate sex was fantastic, and I thought that was. I mean, we were speaking about translations before. I mean, Darcy and Liz dancing at that ball fairly early in the book, where she's making fun of him for his taciturnity, and then of course that epic argument they have after his botched proposal. I mean, both of those scenes in Pride and Prejudice kind of read like, you know, sublimated hate sex, at least to a 21st century reader. And so, you know, that that was a, a great act of translation. I didn't necessarily find it romantic, except in little blips. There's a moment when they're on one of their runs, when he just does a 180 and just like flips around to start running with her without any comment on <laughs> him deciding, you know, that he's deciding to change course. He just does it that I found very sweet. And I, you know, my heart kind of skipped a beat in that moment. So there, there are a few here and there. Well, I, my ideas about it as a romance kept getting intertwined with trying to think about the reality TV element, right? Because the whole book, we should say, yeah, we eligible haven't talked about that. a television That's right. show. Exactly. It's like the, um, you know, the, sorry, Bachelor, Bachelorette. I'm such an idiot. I don't even remember the names of these television shows, right? Yeah, yeah. I am not a yeah. Bachelor or Bachelorette <laughs> viewer, but I, I sort of understand what they are through osmosis. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what it's I understand it on. through watching Unreal, one of my favorite <laughs> TV shows, which is about the making of reality television. And as like, I love, love um, Unreal. And so I brought to this book that affection and I felt like it was hilarious like it they the, I thought that Sittenfeld quite successfully made Bingley who is eventually ends up of course as Jane's husband she made him suspect because he had been on a reality show and his sister was clearly obsessed with that world and trying to um you know rise in it so that whole idea in the book to me at least was a great way again of, of updating some of the themes in Austin of social climbing, mm. which are not necessarily easily um, transplanted into the United States from, you know, earlier centuries in um, England. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was great because it sort of glanced back at some of the contrived social orchestrations and choreography that the men and women in Austin's books go through and that it's all such a performance. And also just the way the economic side of things blurs with the romantic or emotional side in ways that, you know, maybe make us uncomfortable when we turn on our TVs and see it. And that's why we make fun of these reality dating shows. And you wonder whether people sort of felt that same level of discomfort back in the 18th century or something. Yeah, I liked it too. And I'm actually going to quote from Ron Charles's review in the Washington Post. He ended up not liking the book a whole lot, but I, I liked this line. Um, Just as the Austin Project, re oh, the Austin Project, meaning uh, the series where contemporary writers uh, reimagine uh, Jane Austen's books, which eligible as part of the series. Charles writes, just as 
the Austin Project recasts Regency romance in the 21st century. So the Bachelor recasts modern dating in terms of Regency courtship. In either direction, the mashup is just as awkward and hypnotically bizarre. And again, you know, without the benefit of having seen The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, Bachelorette, um, that that comparison seemed uh, indeed hypnotically bizarre to me, and it makes me kind and of want to watch The Bachelor. Allowed, <laughs> <laughs> well, it also allowed Mrs. Bennett's obsession with getting her daughters married, and also with um, you know her class pretensions. It gave all of that like a good drawing board to to be sketched on, right? Because in Austin's time, all of those like class distinctions were so precise and. You know, maybe we don't exactly understand how that um, social world fit together compared to our own, but we have some notion that it was like desperately important and that minor distinctions made a huge difference. Whereas like everything's more jumbled up, or at least we want to imagine that about the United States today. And so the idea that you would have this, you know, Stanford educated doctor who also was like the star of a reality TV and had just moved to Cincinnati, of course he would be the person that you would want your daughter to marry if you were, you know, a social climber like Mrs. Bennett. Yeah, although she, I, I couldn't actually suss out her attitude towards eligible. It seems like she was very embarrassed about it and didn't want, um, didn't want people to talk about it at the dinner table. And yet it's a sort of a running joke throughout the novel that all of the characters watch this trashy show and none of them, none of them except for Elizabeth admit to it. Right. Right. She seemed to want to pretend she was above it all, but of course she wasn't. I did at times feel like this book aspired to be nothing more than, and this is not like derogatory, but it just wanted to provide the exact same kind of like lizard brain uh, shipping pleasure as The Bachelor or as eligible. Like it wanted to have like catty moments between Caroline Bingley and Liz, and it wanted to have swoony romantic moments between Darcy and Liz. And it wanted to have sort of off-color jokes with the sisters and like all of this would be miked uh, metaphorically. And it just, to me, it felt like the book was sort of the text version of this ideal, trashy romance reality dating show. I, it just, they sort of felt like soul sisters to me, those two. I think that's fair. I mean, this book is a braiding together of middle brow, low brow, and kind of high brow pretensions because Curtis Sittenfeld has written some, some really, you know, other excellent works of fiction. And that's a sweet spot, right? For a lot of us, we want to fancy ourselves as reading something that we can talk about on the Slate Audio Book Club. But actually, we also just want like a good beach read. And I do think this book manages to check those different boxes. Yeah, totally agree. The one question I have about the Bachelor and Bachelorette genres. I mean, do they, do the producers kind of contrive narratives whereby the audience is kind of asked to root for one character over another? Or is everyone kind of on the same playing field? Or Oh, I Jessica, guess that, even I know the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> <Tell me>. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's villains and heroines and they, they kind of guide your allegiances where they want to go. Oh, totally. And they try to like amp up the conflict and like, you know, they tape people in this misleading way. Or if someone, once they get wind of some kind of grudge, they go after it really hard. Right, Katie? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, it also, it reminded me of, so they're actually explaining the procedure for eligible and they say, or not the procedure, but like the, the mode of operation. And they say, you know, and Bingley is recalling his time starring on the show. And he says, you know, they deprived the people of books to read, magazines. They made them really bored. They gave them lots of alcohol. They made them really hungry. And then they just put them in rooms together. And that whole idea of like, you don't have the distractions of the internet. You don't have all these like modern luxuries that we use to get by in our lives. Um, and it sort of made me think, huh, I wonder how similar that reality show scenario is to like an 18th century drawing room where it's raining <laughs> and like you don't have, you don't have <laughs> T- TV or Netflix or anything like maybe totally. people There's just behave terribly. That is genius. I had not thought of that. And there have been so many English drawing room novels I've read and movies I've watched where I just think, God, these people must be so bored. So that <laughs> that is genius. Uh, my respect for this book just went up yet another level. Um, I have one more question for you guys about the ending. Um, was it a plus or a minus for you that you knew how the book was going to end? Because obviously it was going to follow the plot of Pride and Prejudice and Darcy and Liz were going to get together. Well, that's what I loved about the ending because it turns out I didn't know how it was going to end. I knew how the plot was going to wrap up more or less, but I didn't know she was going to end with Mary, which is such a surprising and strange yeah. and satisfying choice. Uh, yes, so I, the I didn't very mind end. At all. You're right. Yeah, yeah. But Mary right. I mean, finally the, the, gets to be the narrator, right? Yeah, I loved that. But but you're right that that was just a coda that wasn't you know how the plot would would wrap up. But uh, I, I I thought that was a, kind of a genius grace note to end on. I agree. It gives it that gives it a fresh twist. Agreed. Yeah, and it sort of reframes the entire thing that came before. Is like, well, let's not take it too seriously. Exactly. Um, there are other ways. There are other values to subscribe to. But I also thought it was. I appreciated the twist of having Elizabeth propose to Darcy. I thought that was lovely, and I did feel like there was kind of a whirlwind at the end where a thousand things happened, and it was just so breathless and kind of hard to. I didn't mind, but it just felt like it all happened very, very quickly. And like maybe 16 times as much plot happened in the last 30 pages as in like the the past few hundred. But it didn't bother me. It just felt like a kind of fairy tale, breathless conclusion. So on that note, would you guys recommend Eligible to our listeners? I would wholeheartedly recommend it. I loved it. Yes, I would definitely recommend it. I mean, I think you one wants to come to it with like a particular set of expectations. And I also think it's a great excuse for re-reading Pride and Prejudice. I appreciated Eligible more after I reread Austin, both just because it was fun to think about the text as a pair and also because it gave me a new appreciation for Sittenfeld's acts of adaptation. No, it, it, it gave me renewed appreciation, not just for Austin, but for Sittenfeld's earlier work, particularly American Wife, which I love so much. And Prep, so good, right? Yeah. And just general appreciation for the genre of the like uh, very keenly observed social half satire, half wish fulfillment book. I I hadn't read one of those in a while, and this was so delightful to uh, get lost in. I think that's a great phrase, satire and slash wish fulfillment. Well, thanks so much for joining me, you guys. This was really fun. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audio Book Club at slate.com slash abc. 
visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audio Book Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Jason DeLeon. Slate's executive producer is Steve Liptai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Jessica Winter and Emily Bazelon, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening.